Welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm John Warren, Vice President and General Counsel of the ACFE. And today we are going to have a discussion about the fascinating case of Arif Nakvi. Now, as late as uh, 2017, Arif was a global financial rock star. He was one of the world's leading impact investors. He was a billionaire. He worked with and socialized with people like Bill Gates and Richard Branson and Prince Charles and many others. And then in a matter of months, it all fell apart. Uh, joining us today are the two Wall Street Journal reporters who covered this story and who played a big role in uncovering the fraud at Arif's investment company, which was called the Abraj Group. They've recently written a book about the case, which is called The Key Man, The True Story of How the Global Elite Was Duped by a Capitalist Fairy Tale. So Simon Clark and Will Louch, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks very much for having us. So uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, before we begin, let me say, and I mentioned this uh, before we started recording, but the book is terrific. For anybody listening, uh, I can't recommend it enough. Personally, I took it, I read it on my vacation on the beach, and it reads like a really well-researched piece of financial journalism, but also like a novel, a bit of a page turner. It really is an interesting story. Uh, so well done. Congratulations on the book. Before we jump into the story of, of Arif, can you each just introduce yourselves to our audience and talk a little bit about your background as financial journalists, just in general? And um, we will, Simon, let's start with you. Sure. So I've been a financial journalist for 21 years, based in London, but traveling around Europe, Middle East and Africa, working most of that time for U.S. news organizations the last seven and a half years at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I've specialized in writing about private equity and in doing investigations of financial situations that have gone wrong. Uh, but before I became a journalist, I did spend some time teaching in emerging markets in, in Pakistan and in Gaza. And those experiences were very helpful to me in understanding the developing world and in telling stories such as Abraj's, which spans you know, the, the, the developed economies of North America and Europe, and also into Africa and, and South Asia. Um, in terms of me, I've been a financial journalist for probably about three years when I started working on this story. Um, I was a reporter for Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal, focused on private equity as well. Um, I was based in London initially, then went to New York, and now I've come back to London and I'll be starting a new job working at Bloomberg uh, at the end of the month. Wonderful, great. Okay, so let's dig into uh, the case itself. And as I said, it's a really fascinating case, and, and Arif is a fascinating individual. I think to begin, can you talk a little bit about his background and, and rise and how he kind of came to the position of prominence where he was able to, to commit the fraud that he did? Well, yes. So at the end of 2017, Abraj, Arif's company, was the largest emerging markets private equity firm in the world. And at that time, it was raising $6 billion for its latest investment fund. And it had raised about $3 billion of that $6 billion target. 
It was raising money from U.S. pension funds, Washington State Investment Board, Louisiana uh, teachers, uh, Texas teachers, pension fund in Hawaii. Uh, they were all committing hundreds of millions of dollars to this fund. Um, Abraj also had a number of other funds, including a billion dollar healthcare fund to buy and build hospitals in Africa and South Asia. Uh, the Gates Foundation had invested $100 million in that fund. The US government had committed to that fund, as had the British and French governments, and also the World Bank. So Abraj had started in 2002 as a private equity firm based in Dubai, and it did do some successful deals, and it got a, a strong track record initially. Uh, it expanded geographically across Africa and Asia. And then it started to pitch itself, not just as a private equity firm, but as an impact investing firm. And the pitch to investors was, we will make you money and we will end poverty at the same time by investing in companies in the developing world, in Africa. So providing jobs, expanding companies, schools and hospitals in poorer countries. And because of this pitch, it was able to raise money from, from banks and pension funds, but as I said, also from, from governments, from the development finance institutions of Western governments. So at the end of 2017, Arif and Abraj were really at the peak of their, their powers and their reach in terms of gathering money to invest and investing that money. Um, it all looked like it was going so well until... Uh, things started to fall apart. Until it didn't, right? I got the sense from reading the book that a big part of his success came from the fact that Arif himself was a very charismatic figure, that he seemed to have this ability to convince people that he had this mission that, you know, you, you talked about like people in his, I think at one point in the book, you kind of referred to like the cult of Abraj or something where people felt very motivated by him and by the mission of his organization, right? Could you speak to that a little bit? Sure, Will, do you want to say something about that? Yeah, so, so Arif, from like a very young age, like from his school days, basically, was a very talented public speaker. And what he did in terms of like his organisation, I mean, he imbued in everyone an incredible work ethic. Like Arif was, people say, capable of going to bed at three o'clock in the morning, having drunk a bottle of whiskey, and then he'd be up at seven o'clock, you know, getting ready to go into meetings where he'd then talk all day. And I think he expected as much of his employees as he gave himself. And I think to that point, I mean, the difference with his employees and himself was that he was earning vast sums of money more than they were. And then in terms of his charismatic personality, I mean, a big part of how he was able to raise money and how his firm was so successful was he was constantly touring the world in his private jet, flying into private equity conferences like the Milken Conference. He spoke to it a number of times. He was a fixture at Davos. And when he was there, he would get up on stage and he would deliver a simple but very intoxicating message to largely Western business executives. He would say to them, you know, I'm a Pakistani. I've worked in lots of different markets. My investment firm 
is based in Dubai. We've got offices on four continents around the world. Give us your money and I'll help you provide exposure to these markets which you no longer have, which you've never had exposure to. So, you know, he'll go to big healthcare companies and say, invest in our fund and we can help you grow your market share in Africa or Asia, like markets which if they've been Europe focused or US focused, they've never had exposure to. And so this this message, you know, give your money to me. You know, we're top class in terms of our corporate governance, even though people traditionally perceive emerging markets to be risky. He just drummed this message home again and again. Go and talk at, I don't know, a dozen conferences minimum a year. And that was really a key part of how the firm became, well, I mean, at least on the surface, so successful. Yeah, I think that's right. And you talk about, I thought it was interesting in the title of your book, you use the term capitalist fairy tale. It was this idea that you can have it all, right? You can invest in these companies, you can make money, but you can also solve problems like poverty and hunger and so forth. And that helped him draw in a lot of really sophisticated, high level investors. Could you talk about some of the groups and the organizations? You already kind of touched on it, but who he was dealing with and and who he was operating with. And I'll go back to Simon for this. Yeah, so um, it's a very seductive idea that um, an investor can make money and solve the world's problems at the same time. It is possible, but it's very difficult. It's difficult to, to, to invest profitably. It's also difficult to solve social problems such as poverty or... Uh, environmental degradation or lack of power or access to health or education services, that's difficult too. It's even more difficult to do those things at the same time. And that is that is broadly the pitch of impact investing. And that was the pitch that Arif and Abraj were making. There, you know, he sees the zeitgeist. Globalization was was the name of the game for the global economy in the last 30 years. And, and Arif coming out of the, the developing world, he didn't like the term emerging markets. And he would constantly correct Westerners that use that term. And he would say, these are global growth markets. And, and he was right, they are growth markets. They are also emerging markets. They are markets where regulators have less experience and uh, less reach. Yes, there are financial frauds in the, in North America and Europe all the time, but there certainly are financial frauds in the developing world too. Arif was a is a, is a very intelligent person. He did do some good deals, and that helped him create a track record, which he sold very effectively to Western investors. The problem was that behind the scenes of Abraj, there was there was a lot going on that was not made public. The, the, the firm was spending way beyond its means. And as of the whistleblower who came to us initially in, in January 2018, who I think we should start to talk about now, revealed there was a whole hidden story to Abraj. So behind the great showmanship of Arif at conferences and all the glitzy documents and the the, the, the claims of 18% annual IRRs, there was 
another story to Abraj, which was being completely hidden from view. And that's the story which we started to learn about in January 2018 and to report. So this all started for us. I mean, I, I had written about Arif and Abraj before I first met him in 2007 in Dubai, and I knew people at the firm. But uh, the, the story of the, the collapse of Abraj really started in January 2018 when, when Will was uh, contacted by an anonymous whistleblower by email, uh, someone who we still don't know the name of. Um, but And so Will's going to talk about that. But the important thing to remember here is that this person told us what they thought was going on, but we couldn't use that information to write articles because we didn't know who they were. So then we subsequently had to go and corroborate this information. But Will, why don't you tell everyone what happened? Yeah, that was that was actually I'm sorry to cut you off, Will, but that was going to be my next question, because I think it's such a dramatic thing in the book is that you're just sitting there one day and this email pops up. And, and can you talk to us about what happens that sets this whole thing in motion? Yeah, sure. So I think it's probably mid, maybe early January 2018. I check, woke up in the morning, checked my emails as I did every day. And I mean, most of them are pretty boring press releases. And then I had one which had a slightly odd email address like the sender it was I think it was from a Proton mail account um, and it was wabraj at protonmail.com so I was like this looks kind of interesting clicked on it um, the email initially didn't have a particularly uh, important piece of information it just told me that someone was leaving the firm and I was like okay that's kind of interesting but like not really um, responded you know, said, you know, this person's leaving, is anything else going on? And then I received, a, I don't know, about an 800,000 word email saying that uh, multiple investors in a $1 billion fund, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, CDC, Proparco, US government were investigating where hundreds of millions of dollars of their money um, had gone. And so I read this and I was like, well, that's uh, quite an interesting piece of information, if it is true. Um, and I wasn't that familiar with the Braj, hadn't really written about them much before. So I shared this information with Simon and other colleagues. And that was really the beginning uh, of the whole process. Because, I mean, a lot of the allegations that the anonymous source made, I mean, that was one. I mean, there was bribing politicians in Pakistan was another. I mean, it was all pretty heavy stuff. But as I didn't know who the person was, we couldn't report any of it. It could very easily have just been, you know, a pissed off foreign employee, uh, or it could have been a competitor looking to, you know, bespatch Abraj's name. We basically had to get that information confirmed. Like, And the thing that we started with was looking at the healthcare fund. and how we were able to do that was just trying to contact as many different people involved in the case as possible. So employees, investors, advisors, anyone that might be familiar with the information. And yeah, that, that was, that was really how it all began. That's really interesting. So you, and myself and our audience are not journalists. And I, I, one of the things that's interesting to me or a question I have is as financial journalists, and you're working at the wall street journal, right? Which is the most, 
you know, or among the most prestigious financial newspapers in the world. Is it common to get emails like this? Do you get a lot of anonymous things like uh, making allegations against or, or was this really unusual when it popped up? So I, I reckon in my albeit kind of brief career at that time, I reckon I probably had about four or five other anonymous tips. What the other anonymous tips were typically nowhere near as interesting as this one. Um, there'd normally be stuff about, you know, bullying a firm or, you know, a boss being sexist or something like that. This like, allegation of theft and fraud for a private equity firm, I mean, is just something that I've never really come across. It actually took me a while to kind of get my head around what they were alleging. So they said that the money had been stolen because the firm was a billion dollars in debt. And private equity firms typically earn a huge amount of money from management fees alone. So a PE firm in debt like almost didn't make sense to me. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was pretty extraordinary. And then how my relationship with this anonymous person developed was even weirder because this person, before when I'd had a tip off on something, they'd, they'd speak to me or you'd go and meet them for a coffee or something like that. So you could then substantiate who they were and what they were saying and why they were saying it. This person never spoke to me on the phone, told me who they were or met me. So. I basically interacted with them on a daily basis for about three months without knowing who they were. And it was a very strange period of my life because I would look forward to like seeing what they're going to send me next, for instance, without like, and then it would all just become a game, not a game, but it would be, we'd have to then go and confirm it, which was difficult every time. Um, so, so when the email arrived, Arif was at Davos the World Economic Forum meeting in January 2018. And he was on stage speaking in a publicly televised debate with Bill Gates. And so the central allegation from the anonymous whistleblower was that $200 million had gone missing from the healthcare fund in which Bill Gates was an investor. So we had, we were sort of, reality was presenting us with these two extreme scenarios. One, Arif is a highly respected CEO who sits on panels and debates global public health with Bill Gates, one of the richest people in the world. And then this other scenario, which is saying that Arif's firm has taken money belonging to this very rich person and, and misappropriated it. And so we have a huge responsibility to find out what is the truth. So we went about that by speaking to multiple investors who had sources at the Braj um, and in other places um, who confirmed that indeed investors in the healthcare fund were investigating whether hundreds of millions of dollars of their money had been misappropriated. We were able to confirm that as, as absolutely true, and that was the the first article that we published that investors are investigating if their money has been misappropriated. We obviously, well, we give everyone we write about an opportunity to comment before publishing. So we went to a barge, we said, we, this is what we're hearing. Their spokespeople said, that's outrageous. How dare you suggest that there's a problem? We're, we're, we are 
regulated in seven jurisdictions around the world. We have the highest global standards. How could that be possible? But we had enough information to, 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 to convince the Wall Street Journal's lawyers and our standards people that we were right. And so we published and on February the 2nd, 2018. And then a barrage was inundated with a tsunami of requests from hundreds of its investors and bankers for an explanation about what on earth was going on. After we published, the New York Times also published an article. So you had the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times basically reporting the same thing. Um, Anna Braj was telling its investors and anyone else who cared to listen that this was fake news. So, you know, we've got a quite high stakes situation here in journalism where it's absolutely our responsibility to report accurate information. And the firm we're writing about is saying that the information is inaccurate. Um, the information was accurate, and this was the beginning of a months-long process where we reported multiple breaking stories on, on, on wrongdoings at Abraj. It's important to say that Arif still maintains his, he's innocent. Um, he, he subsequently, you know, so at the end of, so just to tell the story chronologically, we spent months trying to understand what exactly had been going on at Abraj. Spoke to 150 people, including 70 Abraj employees. After by by August of 2018, a chain of sources had put me in touch with someone who who I do know who they are, but still can't say who they are, who had access to Abraj legitimately had access to emails, bank statements, other corporate documents, which this person showed to me that showed alleged fraud, theft and bribery had taken place. We used those documents to write a front page investigative feature, which was published in the Wall Street Journal in October 2018, which was basically showing how six, more than $600 million dollars had been moved out of investor funds at Abraj into secret bank accounts. And then from there, at least $200 million had been used to send outside of Abraj, including to secret companies and bank accounts controlled by Arif in the Cayman Islands. And money had been used to pay expenses and salaries and to maintain the, the high living of, of the founder and, and, and other executives. Um, then six months after that, in April 2019, Arif was arrested at Heathrow Airport in London. He had been criminally indicted by the US Department of Justice, um, along with five of his other former colleagues, uh, accused of fraud, wire fraud, conspiracy, theft, and attempted bribery. Um, and he was arrested in the UK on a warrant that had been issued in the US in order to be extradited to the US to face trial. And if found guilty in all counts, he faces up to 291 years in jail. Now in the US criminal indictment, the which you know, now is a public document where the DOJ is making its case, a lot of the information they have includes emails and bank statements and company documents, which had been the source for our investigative journalism months before. 
the DOJ didn't get it from us. They probably got it mm -hmm. from the same sources that we got it from. Um, but, you know, this is the level of documentary evidence uh -huh, that we uh -huh. need to publish an article. Um, we're working to extremely well, I, high standards. I, I'm really glad you mentioned that the, the level of documentary evidence you need to publish an article and, and the allegations of fake news, because not to, not to veer too far afield, but that's something we hear a lot about, about fake news. And I think for, for our members and our audience, we may not, I personally don't really know the specific standards that a newspaper like the Wall Street Journal has to adhere to. So what is the process? You have an anonymous source that's making allegations. Is there a number, is there a certain amount of corroboration? Do you need two other sources? Like, how does that process go about building out from one anonymous source to a case you feel comfortable publishing? The anonymous source, in terms of reporting the article, does not count as a source. Basically, yeah. The, the anonymous source gives us an idea, a hypothesis, which we then have to test by finding evidence that this is true. And, you know, one person who won't, who, who, who won't allow us to, 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 name, to, to, to name them in print is not enough, right? So, you know, strictly speaking, if you're going to use anonymous sources, people familiar with the situation, if that's going to be the, the level of sourcing that you disclose to your readers, you, you really need at least, you really need two people familiar with the situation, ideally who are on different sides of a transaction. So if you're going to say company X is going to buy company Y for $5 billion, according to people familiar with the situation, you really need a person who's on the buy side and on the sell side of that transaction. When you're writing about serious allegations of wrongdoing, you really need a lot more sourcing than that. You need multiple people on multiple sides of the transact of a situation. And, and then you really ideally need documentary evidence. And we need to then have conversations with our lawyers at the Wall Street Journal about how we got that documentary evidence, who gave it to us, why did they give it to us? And then we need to take all these allegations to the people or companies we're writing about and very openly tell them what we know or what we've been told. We don't do surprises. We don't publish articles without telling people who are the subjects of those articles what we're going to write. So we tell them, look, this is what we're hearing. What do you say? What what is is it true? Is it not true? Can you can you explain what's going on here? Yeah, the, the standards of the Wall Street Journal are second to none. There are other organizations that have similarly high standards, but this stuff is we take this very seriously. And in a situation like this, you know, when we went to a barge, usually when you're making such serious allegations against a firm. You very quickly you find yourself not talking to their press officers, but to their lawyers who send letters which are usually have at the top written not for publication. And then they make it clear that if you write this, which is clearly not helpful to this organization, then they may, may well sue us. So, um, you know, it's a long and complicated process.
It sounds like it. And there's a lot of high stakes involved. Um, Will, I'd like to go back to you for a second. You mentioned, so you get this anonymous complaint or this anonymous whistleblower email. And then two things. One is you had not written about a barrage before. Do you have a sense of why the person contacted you? Do you think it was just chance? Do you think, do you, did you ever get a sense of that? And two, it sounds like you had sort of a running correspondence with this person that kind of ran parallel to your own investigation. So could you talk about that, how, how that proceeded a little bit? I mean, did you get a feel for the person? Were you getting messages constantly? Were you asking questions based on what you're finding? Could you just talk a little bit about your communications with the source? Yeah, so, so how it kind of worked was, I mean, they reached out to me and they actually messaged another reporter at the New York Times as well. They made me aware of that after about a week of having been given the initial information. So then we knew that we were basically in a race to get some stuff confirmed to get to the point where we could publish an article. But how, how it kind of worked, so I was talking to this person, uh, whoever they are, and I, I, they said that they worked at the firm and they were based in New York. It was important. I spent about, I don't know, two years trying to guess who exactly they are. Um, still haven't managed to do that. But so they'd tell me something and then I would tell Simon and other colleagues what they were telling me. And then at the same time, I was also building, we were all building, trying to build as many sources as possible. So, I mean, that just involved just calling firms involved like finding people on LinkedIn that might be familiar with stuff and so what what kind of happened and how we were able to report that and use that was just triangulating information from so many different places so I don't know I'll call a source that maybe works at one of the companies that was invested in a barrage like Simon maybe message someone he knew that worked at the firm and then we'd all just feed this information back and forth between each other and then, like, the anonymous person was just one amongst, I, I mean, literally. So what, what happened with the barrage was uh, there was such poor communication inside the firm, and not only inside the firm, also with their investors. So as things, as the situation escalated, investors and employees even had no clue what was going on at the company. So we, because we were writing about it a lot, became a kind of focus point for investors and employees to come to for information. So people would be like, you know, people would message us and be like, oh, we've not been paid this money that we need to get. Like, do you know what's going on with the company's balance sheet? Like, if we get fired now, we're going to get our end of service benefits, which is kind of like their redundancy package. And so we just had this huge network, which just kind of evolved organically in which like the, the anonymous person was helpful initially because we could call someone up and be like, hey, like, do you know what's going on here? So for instance, hey, have you appointed this forensic accountancy firm to investigate where your money is? And then they'd be like, actually, yes, we have. And then we could call up another person that was familiar with the accountancy firm being appointed and being like, so we've heard this. And then we'd, then we'd have sourcing sufficient to publish an article. So it all just kind of, it just turned into like a giant network of people exchanging information about a company kind of in real time. It was, it was a strange, strange situation, but obviously a, a good one for a journalist to be in because we became the kind of central hub for information on what was going on. Really fascinating. 
I guess my question is, uh, and I'll ask this to you, Simon. So you guys published your initial article, I believe, in January 2018 or early 2018. Can you give us a sense of the timeline of how quickly things fell apart at Abraj once you published? So the first article was published on February the 2nd of 2018. And after that, Abraj's problems had become public. They're, the problems were long running prior to that. But at the point of us publishing, those problems became public. And at that point, it accelerated the situation at Abraj. No more banks would lend money, or, or even though it was struggling to raise funding before that. That was really a big problem. Investors wanted to know where was their money, and a lot of them wanted their money back. Um, Abraj tried to continue its fundraising. It tried to separate its holding company from its fund management company in March of 2018. Uh, that wasn't enough. Uh, they stopped the fundraising in, in, in March. Uh, they tried to manage Arif out of the CEO position and installed two new co-CEOs. That didn't work. Then creditors started saying, we're going to like file for to provisional liquidation, force you into liquidation if you don't pay us your money back. And by June, that is what happened. Um, two unsecured creditors said, we want our money back. They went to the Cayman Islands court where the, the holding companies of Abraj uh, were incorporated in the Cayman Islands. So then Abraj decided to file for provisional liquidation in June 2018. And the Cayman Islands Court appointed provisional liquidators from um, PwC and Deloitte. Um, we're still trying to get to the bottom of what exactly has gotten, gone wrong. I've got a source who's shown me bank statements and allowed me to photograph those bank statements, but they're not enough. It takes, us, it takes me until August 2018 to meet this source who showed me the documents, which basically was strong enough proof of theft, fraud, and attempted bribery. Um, and we still, and then it takes us until October to get this article published. By this time, liquidators are trying to sell a barrage to other private equity firms. That doesn't work for various reasons, including the finances of Abraj are such a tangled mess. No one can understand where the assets and liabilities really are and who, who owns them. There's multiple claims on assets. Money's gone missing all over the place. LPs, investors, don't really want to go with one private equity firm or, or another. So they can't sell Abraj as an entire company. So then the liquidators decide to try and break it up and sell it by fund by fund. Uh, but it's such a complicated situation that that process is still ongoing. The the liquidators and their lawyers have have charged you know tens of millions of dollars of fees. Um, there's still no real resolution. Then you know April 2019, you have the SEC and the DOJ filing cases. You know DOJ is a criminal case. So then you've got this criminal legal process going on alongside the liquidation process. 
and we're that we're still that's still ongoing um also you know a big question mark in all of this is what exactly were Braj's auditors doing for years that's KPMG um KPMG Lower Gulf which is the UAE unit of KPMG there have been lawsuits against them from the liquidators and from investors. There are sort of lawsuits against various investor groups and entities springing up across tax havens around the world. A lot of that's just going to have to wait for if and when, you know, the trial of Arif Narkvi occurs in New York. His, his extradition to New York has been ordered by the UK court system and by UK government, Arif wants to appeal at that uh, extradition. He has not been granted the right to appeal yet. He's still waiting to hear. So this is, you know, this is a multi-year process. It's a, it's a big mess for anyone who was involved with it. It is certainly a big mess. Will, do we have a sense in the final tally of just how much money was stolen, just how much was taken? Yeah, so I think that uh, the provisional liquidators, I think the figure is $789 million was the amount of money that was unlawfully taken. And I think that was taken over the course of 3,000 transactions over many years. And then of that 789, I think, is it around $400 million is missing still? And the liquidators have subpoenaed basically every single bank in the world because they just can't, like, they don't know where the money's gone. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's the final tally, which is a a pretty sizable a pretty sizable sum. Um, it's about seven hundred fifty million dollars left a Braj that shouldn't have left a Braj, and three hundred eighty five million dollars of that is still missing. And liquidators would like to know where it is. The difference between the two was sent back to a branch. Um, so it's hundreds of millions of dollars. It's staggering, staggering figures. I, I would like in the time we have left to just kind of get your thoughts on a couple of topics. Um, one, it was such a, an appealing idea, the idea of impact investing and of, of doing good while generating profits. So um, question one is, do you think this model could have worked if not for the fraud? Like, what, was, it, was it a feasible venture if he hadn't been stealing and if they had been honest about the bookkeeping? And um, along with that, if you do think that's feasible, then how do you think going forward, investors like the Gates Foundation or, or the large retirement funds or, or, or the groups that invest in these, what were the mistakes they made that could be avoided in the future in, in doing this kind of investing going forward? Like what, what were the warning signs they missed? And um, I'll start with Simon. So we do think that impact investing can work. We think there are a lot of issues around it. It's often takes place in the form of private equity investment. There's a lot of secrecy around private equity firms and uh, not a lot of transparency. So we, we think there needs to be more transparency. We think there also needs to be more participation in the decision-making processes if this really is about solving 
problems of poverty, for example, then it would be good if there were some poor people involved in the process rather than just private equity people in London or New York. Um, so, so yes, we, we don't think this blows up the idea of capitalism being used for to, to, to solve social problems, but clearly this story exposes a lot of issues around those who are making claims that they can make money and solve problems at the same time. Um, people, you know, you, you, we need transparency. If, 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 if there's going to be funds investing in difficult parts of the world, then investors and I, ideally the public need to know where that money's going, how it's being invested, and, 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 and what, are the, what, are the, what are the compensation terms for the managers involved? Um, we need a lot more transparency around how this money moves. Um, there, there were deeper issues, even setting aside the fraud. So the $1 billion healthcare fund that Abraj raised was pitched as a fund that would provide for-profit hospitals and healthcare services for very poor people. The problem is that very poor, poor people don't have money to pay for healthcare services. And you know, in the book, we show that Abraj had internal emails and correspondence where they were admitting internally that the hospitals that they, they did start to build would not be able to provide services to the very poor people who live near them because those people didn't have any money. So you know, it's very important to scrutinize the promises that these firms make and compare that with you know, realistic information about whether or not the promises are achievable. We just need to look much harder at that. And to be skeptical of these promises is not to be a cynical person or, or a bad person. It's just to be someone who really wants to have an honest conversation about the complexity of the problems and, the, and how likely it is that those problems could be solved in a profitable way. Maybe sometimes, uh, you know, if you want to provide healthcare services to very poor people in Pakistan or Kenya, you know, you're not going to make a profit out of it. So do it in a philanthropic way where you're not expecting a return on your capital. Maybe sometimes you can provide some services that will be profitable, fine, but, but not all the time. We just need a more detailed conversation and assessment of the situation. Well, well, same question for you. What do you think this says in the final analysis about, about the, the goals that, that RF had, had set forth and about you know, the failings of people to, to, to see what was going on at Abrage? If you look at like how things have panned out, I mean, in terms of like what, what Arif set out to disprove, he always used to say that you know, investing in Western markets was as risky as it was uh, investing in emerging markets. He said multiple times that corporate governance wasn't an issue in emerging markets as well. And Arif basically set out to disprove a lot of things, which, I mean, he has ultimately ended up in, to some extent, at least proving. Like, I mean, he's done a lot of damage, I think, in terms of if you want capital to flow from the West and pension funds to emerging markets where it can do good by being invested in some companies. If you look at fundraising for investment firms in the Middle East now, for instance, if you talk to people that work there, 
they say that it's become very, very difficult to raise money. So, I mean, he was the poster boy for this. And at the same time, I think he's kind of ended up at least for the last few years, not quite destroying it, but he's, he's damaged, damaged that movement severely, um, I think. And as to whether I think, yeah, I, I think that's what I would have to say about that. But I think in terms of impact investing more broadly, I mean, Arif was an early adopter. If you look at like what's happened now, I mean, pretty much every mainstream financial institution in the world is now talking in the same language that Arif was talking in about 15 years ago. And I just hope for the sake of everyone that the financial institutions now talking in his language uh, more sincere than he was. If we we think that you know the the best way out of this is to talk about it and to talk about what went wrong. So thank you for having that conversation with us, because a lot of the investors in a barrage really don't want to talk about a barrage. And while that may be understandable, it's embarrassing, it's problematic. There's litigation risk. We don't think it's helpful. We think that. You know, the best thing that can happen now is that lessons are learned, real conversations are had, and so the industry can take those learnings, not repeat mistakes, and move on and become stronger. But there is a tendency in finance, particularly in private equity, where it's easy to hide things because there's a lot of secrecy, for conversations not to happen. And... We think the conversation needs to happen so that learnings can occur and people can get on with doing business because there are important jobs to be done. It's important that capital moves from various parts of the world to other parts of the world, that it is invested in a way that's profitable and useful. So so let's talk about it and uh, learn the lessons and, and do it better next time. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. That's a great way to end our conversation. Simon and Will, thank you so much for joining us. Again, I just want to uh, plug the book. It's called The Key Man, The True Story of How the Global Elite Was Duped by a Capitalist Fairy Tale. And again, my personal recommendation, it's a terrific read. It's a terrific story. And there are a lot of really important lessons for everybody in our industry uh, to understand. So thank you so much. We really appreciate you joining us. Thanks very much for having us. Thanks, John. Good to talk to you. Thank you to everyone for joining us today. And I will turn the podcast back over to Mandy Moody. And thank you all for listening today. You can find all of our episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can search for Fraud Talk and hit subscribe. You can also find our collection at acfe.com slash podcast. And that wraps up this month. And we will talk to you again next month.